What's up, guys? This is Danny Langloss, and you're listening to the Leadership Excellence Podcast. Please hit that subscribe button so you never miss another episode. Consider giving us a rating or review so we can keep growing and help more people. Thank you. There are so many things that impact our ability to achieve success, but none are more important than leadership. Individuals and organizations rise and fall with leadership. We are here to help you rise. Thank you for joining us. This is the Leadership Excellence Podcast. Hello, leaders, and welcome to Leadership Excellence. My name is Danny Langloss, and today I am joined by Dr. P.J. Capozzi. Dr. Capozzi is a dynamic speaker, transformational leader, and educator, a four-time cancer survivor. P.J. began his career as an award-winning teacher in the inner city of Chicago and has subsequently led significant change in every administration post he's held. P.J. became a principal at the tender age of 28, within three years was able to lead a small town school that was historically achieving near the bottom of its county to multiple national recognitions. After four years, P.J. moved to his current district, Meridian District 223, as superintendent and has led a similar turnaround, leading to multiple national recognitions for multiple different efforts. Just astonishing. In the midst of this pandemic, his creative mind uses dual experiences with education and healthcare to determine a framework for education evolution. PJ inspires innovation in this education space like no other by encouraging increased interdependence, for-profit partnerships, and a much faster speed of change. He believes it is no longer about small adaptive steps. To learn from this pandemic and advance our public education to the next phase of its growth, he believes we need evolutionary steps. Today, PJ is going to help us envision a realistic and immediate future for public education. PJ, welcome to the Leadership Excellence Podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Danny. I'm excited. So, so we're in the middle. I'm excited too. So PJ uh, did a TED Talk within the last few months here during COVID. Um, I watched it, saw the TED Talk, absolutely blew me away. He's a phenomenal speaker. He's got a great message, innovative, progressive. And so I'll have links to that in the podcast description because I really encourage uh, the listeners to go and check that out. It's, it's like 15 or 18 minutes, something like that, but it's, it's well worth your time. PJ, I just want to start. You're a superintendent. Healthcare and education system are, are two of the most disrupted industries right now. I mean, there's so much disruption, but so much disruption. How are you guys dealing with that? What's it like to be boots on the ground in the education institution? Very different. Um, and in some ways it's, it's been amazing and in other ways uh, really troubling. And then when you look at it at, I think the 20,000 foot view or the macro lens, I think it's concerning um, from the element that I think we're missing out on some huge opportunities to leverage change. So to kind of piece that through, like the work that teachers are doing and the work that some districts are doing is incredibly innovative and thoughtful. And they're like, everyone is working so hard to put together a product that um, our kids deserve. And so in that aspect, like it's inspiring and it's uplifting. Um, It's disheartening when like, I've been called more things like more creative insults in the last six months um, than I've ever been called before. And I think there's a weird confluence of events where uh, I think people are 
more outspoken and entitled to their opinion through kind of the social media age. And there's just such angst societally. Um, and some of it is good angst and some of it is bad angst, right? Like, so I think the social justice movement is good, necessary angst that people are feeling. I think the election brought a lot of times the worst out of people. Um, but in the same element of it bringing the worst out, like I think we're more civic minded than typical, which is a huge win. Um, and so I think you add in those things on top of COVID and it's been really explosive. Um, I was laughing yesterday. I got, you know, some hate email and in two back-to-back emails, um, I was called a liberal shill for our governor. And then I was accused of just blindly backing, you know, Trump and the other email, like literally back-to-back. I'm like, I must be doing something right. Like if people are, are, are pinning me for both sides of the spectrum here, but it's just a really interesting time where people are um, outspoken and critical. Um, and in some elements, I think we can leverage that and be stronger as a result. And other elements, it's it's hard. It's just hard right now to be in, to be an educator. And that's not really anything I've ever said before. Um, that I've, I've just never felt it not quite that way. And then in terms of, I, I think we're doing the work. Um, but in the midst of doing the work, I think we're missing out on some opportunities um, because it is just so troublesome every day. Like uh, last night, I emailed you and let you know that. Um, it was a difficult day because I'm quarantined myself and we had to move our high school to full remote because um, quite frankly, we're unable to staff it with able-bodied people at this point. And uh, like, I still think there's creative solutions out there, right? Like, so the fact that we can't run trigonometry, like, I feel like, and we're getting closer to that, like in my district, but like there's, I should have a partnership with another district in Detroit that I can pop into their trigonometry class for my kids that day. If my teacher's not able-bodied, like, I feel like there's some massive, huge leverage pieces that we're just missing because the work is so hard and everyone's so busy and tired and stressed out that we're missing some of these opportunities in the midst of it. So as hopefully the pandemic slows, which I know it's not right now, it's intensifying, but hopefully as the pandemic slows, these are some of the things that we do in education is to take a, a look at it and say, okay, we're, we're getting through this really difficult time that none of us expected to be in 12 months ago. So what, what now? What, what can we make better? What is incumbent upon us? Because I think it's really interesting. The teachers are changing rapidly right now. But, and so oftentimes the administration and district office level people complain that teachers are resistant to change. The teachers are changing like crazy right now, but we're not changing the structures around it to amplify their change. Um, and so it's like, we're, we have a window and I don't, that window is not shut right now, but we need to, we need to execute and leverage that window. Yeah, 100%. You know, I, one of the things I talk about a lot is challenge equals opportunity. And the greater the challenge, the greater opportunity. And we've seen such incredible innovation across so many different sectors. Um, and, and now is that time to capitalize on it. And, and when you're forced to step up and meet those challenges, all of a sudden, things that you thought weren't possible become possible. Sure. You know, and I do want to, I just want to take a second and thank you and thank everybody in the education field, the, the microscope that, that, is, that is on you and, and on the teachers and on the system, the, the polarization of society. You know, as we're recording this podcast, we're, you know, one week to the day past the election. Uh, my, my wife, Valerie, is a kindergarten teacher at Montmorency School in Rock Falls. And, it, and it's tough. I mean, to if, if people listening can imagine, you've got kindergartners, right? Like 
five, six-year-olds that you've got to keep a mask on, that all they have runny noses, that can't touch each other, and then half the social distance. Um, it's a crazy, it's a crazy, crazy thing. And I know she's been from anywhere from 15 and down to five students. So I just want to thank all the educators out there and, and really frame and shape. When we talk about the future of education, this is about recognizing all the great work that's being done, but envisioning a better future. Because if there is a better way, and there are better ways all the time, and that's this foundation of being committed to excellence, um, we've got to pursue those because we're talking about the, the future of our society. So thank you for that. PJ, can, can you start by taking us back to December 12th, 1997? Yeah, it's a day that um, I will never forget. It, so uh, that was the day that I, I first learned of my first uh, cancer diagnosis. Uh, so at the time, like um, I'd gone in for some normal checkups and um, Long story short, I had a biopsy, but I had I was in the middle of basketball season and um, of good health, and um, so I thought very little of it. I thought my mom was making a big deal out of something small, and I had to get a biopsy, and uh, I was quite frankly annoyed by it. Um, and so, so much to the, the tune, like I wasn't waiting on the results. You know, like now as a grown man, if I had to biopsy, I'd be you know incredibly stressed out for you know the day or two or three that the results are supposed to come. It was completely out of my mind. Um, I was more focused on where the party was after the game, um, to be honest. And so um, when I pulled into the driveway, um, I remember who dropped me off. A, a girl named Kim Sandin dropped me off and I get out of her car and um, I see my dad's car and my, my head initially went to the worst possible thought, which my mom was in poor health and I thought something had happened to her. So like, that's how far out of my mind my situation was. Yeah. Um, I got to the door and saw my father crying and uh, the next six months were, were complete whirlwind from bone marrow testing to uh, chemo to radiation to li literally every process and procedure associated um, that you've heard with with cancer treatment uh, that I underwent so it was for like forever well it's indelibly placed in my mind uh, as a as a day that I think in many ways kind of changed the trajectory of my life and at the time I thought negatively and now with perspective, I think positively, um, but that took a, a long time to get there. And it was one of the things that I felt kind of bad about in the Ted talk is that, you know, you, you get up on stage and you pontificate about all the lessons that you learned from something like that wasn't my perspective at 17 or 18 or 19. Um, it took me a while to wrap my brain around um, what the experience really meant for me and how it could shape me and how I could make it, leverage it to be a better person um, because for a while I kind of had you know the YOLO mentality like you know I've already gone through this I'm going to do what I want to and um, probably led to some unsavory behaviors in my college experience um, but in time I learned from it. Yeah it, it was really powerful some of the lessons you talked about uh, a, a teacher who really is really changed your life and impacted your life in a way that has rippled in the lives of so many others because the work you're doing is absolutely phenomenal. And if it wasn't for this teacher in this moment, you know, I, I, I got from your Ted talk that you just wonder where you'd be, what would your trajectory have been? Could, could you talk about that? Sure. Um, so teacher's name is Ron Sawin, I'm retired teacher and administrator from the Lincoln way district. Um, so my experience in school 
like I enjoyed school quite a bit, but I also had an incredibly privileged upbringing. Um, I, I happened to be good at school, um, but I had uh, a mom who was fortunate enough to be a stay-at-home mom that was on me about grades all the time. And, you know, we had one boy, one girl, one cat, one, like the only thing we were missing growing up was a picket fence. And um, so teachers were like cool, but like they didn't really mean anything to me, you know, like coaches might have, but like teachers were just, you know, you know, part of the process until this experience happened. And so it's really hard to learn calculus from a homebound tutor that was never a math teacher, you know, and, uh, and it, particularly when you're sick and going through and exhausted and going through cancer treatment. And so um, at the time, finishing calculus was really low on my list of priorities. And my parents kind of agreed, like, you know, this, you're going through some stuff right now. We can, you can pick up calculus as a senior. You don't have to get through this. Uh, and as soon as I kind of got wind and it, you know, Today, it'd be like I would have shot an email to Mr. Sawin, but at the time, you know, you write a letter because it's 1997, um, which I'm sure that like they were using email, but I wasn't, it wasn't commonplace for a student to email a teacher. And uh, then he just started showing up, <laughs> just started showing up at the house and wouldn't let me quit on myself. And at that moment, I did have perspective to say, okay, wait, like, if this is the impact this, this man is having on me, then think about all the kids that don't have all the privileges that I have. Um, that don't have the parents checking in on them, that aren't naturally good at school. Like, this feels really cool what this guy's doing for me. Can I do it for other people? Um, and at that point, um, my experience in, in life was somewhat limited, but at that point I, I decided I wanted to be an urban educator. Like I wanted to go into the inner city and try to do, try to do work that way. And that's what, how I ended up um, in Julian at my first experience as a, as a teacher. Wow. You know, it's funny, we talk about leadership and this being a leadership podcast, there are formal leaders and informal leaders at any time we can go from being follower to leader. Um, and I think the greatest leaders are the greatest followers. And I'm working on this concept called creating a culture of leadership. I wrote about it and published some things through LinkedIn and, and came back to the impact that people have. And I actually wrote about a kindergarten teacher really talking about my wife. Um, and at that moment, Dr. Sowen, or not doctor, your teacher, Mr. Sowen, stepped up to the plate and he led. He, he saw a young man struggling, going through what is, is undoubtedly probably one of the, the toughest, if not the toughest time of your life. And he knew what kind of a pivotal moment that was. And even though he wasn't a principal or a superintendent, you know, he, he didn't have any formal leadership title within the school district. He took it upon himself to lead as teachers do lead every day their students and came to, to, to show care, to believe in you and to help you. And because of that moment, right, in large part, because of that moment, look at the impact now that you're having in so many people's lives. Yep. I mean, doing TED Talks, you've written, I believe, seven books. Is that right? Yep. Number eight's on its way out. Pre-order available. You're, the, you're the, the superintendent. You've received several national recognitions. And that national recognition, and I know for you as a humble guy, isn't about you. But if, if, if your schools are receiving this national recognition, think about what that translates to into all of those students. Yep. So, so the way that, yeah, I always talk about this as planting seeds, right? Like, so as an educator, I feel like every day, like we, we plant thousands of seeds, teachers probably more so than, than formally titled leaders. And we never know which seed's going to, to germinate, right? Like we don't know which one's going to plant. And the example I use all the time is that like when I'm in a store and somebody comes up and says, Hey, you know, Mr. C, um, 
do you remember that time you gave me this talk? And I never, ever remember that. Like, I don't remember that talk. Now, I remember hundreds of talks that I've given. I'm like, oh, yeah, this was the one. Like, I just changed a life today, baby. Like, and it's never that talk. And it's never that kid. It's the other kid that, you know, was having a bad day and he pulled out in the, in the hallway and gave a hug to or let eat in the office because they're having, like, all of those things. So I, you, we're constantly planting seeds. You never know which one's going to take. But once you plant that seed, and if that tree comes to roost, right, like, then, then that tree's going to have the ability to plant hundreds and thousands of more seeds. So like, to me, it's just this like massive game of, of trickle down and like planting, you know, like I, I always envision it like an apple, right? Like an apple's got eight to 10 seeds. You plant eight to 10 seeds, maybe one tree comes up, but that tree is going to yield 200 apples a year with 10 seeds in it, right? So now we got 2000 more chances. So as an educator, I always, uh, the, the vernacular I always use is planting seeds. And um, the amazing part to me, and I, I wonder if your wife can, you know, relate to this or any other educators, like, it's never the one that I thought. It's never the, the speech. I'm like, oh, yeah, this was the Newt Rockney speech. Like, I nailed it, right? Like, it's never that. It's always the, the little subtleties that you just do um, as you are doing the work that seem to have the life-changing or life-altering impact. Um, and that's, like, that's the power, right? Like, that's the privilege. That's the opportunity. And that's the responsibility is that that's why you bring your A-game every day because you don't know when your A-game is going to do that for some kid. And now, as a leader, what's intoxicating about leadership it, to me is, like, I believe that same thing about with adults, right? Like, so if I can take a 45 year old, you know, whatever teacher from Wyoming that I'm consulting with their district and I plant that seed that changes the trajectory of their adult life, like that's just as meaningful, might be even a little bit more meaningful, right? Because then the, um, so that's why like I've be, like fallen in love with the, the leadership role is because I view it the exact same way. We're just planting seeds. Um, and if I give a talk to a thousand people and I, you know, eight seeds take, great right like that that's that's a win uh, it's just about figuring out how they're they're going to go forward and, and, and pay that forward yeah absolutely love that i know i can relate um i spent 21 years in policing 10 years as a police chief and of uh, the people that come up and say stuff and i always feel bad but you meet so many people and you don't remember a lot of those circumstances but to to see the impact of that. And I guess I challenge all leaders listening now going through very difficult times, right? Times of uncertainty, fear, doubt, chaos, polarization of the country who say, is it really making a difference? It is. Believe it. We're telling you right now, it, it is. And we don't always realize the difference in impact, but it, but, it, but it has an incredible impact. And I think of all the the issues facing our country, you know, social justice issues around racism, gender equality, food insecurity, substance abuse, you know, child abuse, mental health issues, issues in the health system, you know, all, all the different things, right? It's all going to come down to one thing to solve these problems, and that's going to be leadership, right? It's, it's going to be leadership. So coming up through this the medical system, right? Because a good port, portion of your life has been spent interacting in, in the medical system, but it gave you a perspective for, for this education evolution. Can you, can you kind of walk through how you've come to where you're at with the vision, you know, that, that you have, does that make sense? For sure. Uh, so I think, uh, so one of the things you said earlier in the podcast that I really liked was the best leaders are the best followers, right? The best leaders are the best learners. And so for me, it's, we are a sum of our experiences. And if we can try to find what those silver linings are in every experience, and then intentionally seek out different experiences to expand our purview, then we have a greater shot at becoming a better leader. Um, and 
also just like a better human, which I think is important. And so I've spent um, far too much time in hospitals in my in my life. Um, and so either I can sit there and uh, feel bad for myself, or I can look at it for for leadership lessons. And now, like where my brain is at, like I can't not like we went to Disney world and like, I wrote like a four page blog about like the leadership lessons from attending Disney, like, like everywhere I go, like, like I see either positive examples of leadership or things that organizations or companies could work on. And when I look at the medical field and I have a, you know, a doctor on my board. So I see it in that regard as well. I just look at how they do things compared to how we do things. Um, and a, there's a million obstacles, right? Like compensation, one of them, et cetera. But when I look at how they do things compared to how we do things, there's so much to be learned uh, in terms of how they depend on each other, how they connect, how they listen to research, how they're willing to change practice relatively quickly based on, you know, new and informed research. Uh, And now that doesn't make the medical system perfect, right? Like there's a reason why um, healthcare is better in certain aspects than others. And again, it's the same thing as education typically are, are people of color and are people of lower socioeconomic privilege are receiving worse healthcare. Like, so it is not a perfect system. Um, but holistically, like in COVID is a great amplifier of that. If you look at, you know, what we know about our hospitalization and mortality rates, like we're getting better at this. Like they're getting better in real time. They are doing research in real time. They are trying and adapting in real time. And like, I just keep thinking about like, if this was a problem in education, how many years it would take before we would universally adapt to new practices and accept those and then implement those in order to better serve our, our kids. And like the question becomes down to it, like to me is always like, do we honestly believe in education that we are life changers? Because if we believe kids' lives depend on it, well, we probably change. But if we just believe we're a cog in the wheel of society and that we maybe have an impact, then the impetus to change is a little bit different. Whereas in the medical field, in particular, like when we're working with COVID right now, like people's lives depend on it. So we're going to change rapidly and quickly and comprehensively. And if you think about what's happened since, you know, Rudy Gobert day in March or whatever it is like to now think about just the things we know as people that aren't in the hospital that haven't gone through a difficult battle with COVID, like even like the Tylenol thing, right? Like you can only use Tylenol. You can't use aspirin at the beginning. Now, now it doesn't matter. Right. Then there was, the blood type thing was, you know, if you were, oh, it was good, then it was bad. Now it's back to good. Like the, the research and the data is changing in real time and people are making real time life-changing decisions on it. Like, I don't know that that's ever happened in education. And so when we're looking at us, like if and I do, like, I believe we are life-changing, like we are a life-changing organization and entity and industry, then why aren't we changing in real time like that? And what would it take? Like, and if it, like, if we don't believe it, like, what would it take to convince us that, hey, maybe we, we should do better on behalf of kids. Maybe we should be disruptive to us. Maybe we shouldn't focus on logistics as much as we do. Like, if this has taught us, you know, it should have taught us many things. But one of the things is, like, if we're waiting on logistics to be perfect to make change, it's never, ever going to happen. So let's get messy and let's do the right things. Wow. what 100%. And that, how do you... So I think that I think that becomes the issue about how do we create the mindset shift? Because what you're talking about is this mindset shift and, and let's acknowledge it. Teachers are underpaid. They're underappreciated, right? They don't have a lot of the resources. Maybe they need in the classroom, a lot of places, there's too many students to the number of teachers, but those are things we can't control. And I'm a big believer 
and our team is are big believers that we got to control the controllables and we got to stay aligned to mission and purpose. And we have to shift away when we talk about the things we don't have and the reasons why we're not, then we shift to that more victimhood mentality, mm-hmm. right? Yes, um, sir. We've got to shift to the champion mentality. And so how do you begin to create that shift? Because there, there's a lot of challenges there. Yeah. So for me, I think the first thing we have to do is start questioning everything and like become a, a skeptic. And, and so once we can identify what we're actually trying to do, then I think we can create clear purpose, right? Like, so when you talk about like mission and purpose, we, in education, we say things like we want to, and we have all these like flowery mission statements that essentially say we want to create good citizens and like taxpayers and, and promote democracy, which is awesome. Like that's a, like ambitious, right? But what does that actually mean? And what does it look like? Um, so like when we think about how are schools judged, standardized tests, well, we know that that's kind of like malarkey. And I, I didn't know if I could swear on your podcast, so I didn't. So I wanted to swear. If there's, if there's, if there's any doubt, that, like, that's how I feel about standardized tests. So, um, the, so we know that standardized tests do a handful of things, right? Like they're very good at predicting zip code, parental income, parental level of uh, education conferred, IQ, natural intelligence. Like we're really good at predicting those things. We also know that standardized tests don't predict things for the country. So like when we're looking at standardized tests, like, and we know that we don't perform well on standardized tests because our politicians hit us over the head with it all the time. The way that the narrative goes, it makes it seem like we used to, like when America was thriving, which again, I don't know by what metric we aren't. I, like, I know that we have a lot of stuff to work on, but we're doing okay. But it makes it seem like we used to be killing it at standardized tests. We never have. We've always been average at standardized tests. So, and they're no way reflective of GDP and they're no way reflective of patents. So I use patents because I think that's a good measure of innovation and creativity. So if we know the standardized tests are not predictive of anything, and that's how we are measuring schools, then I think we can start to unravel the whole system, right? Like standardized tests are based on standards. What are standards? Standards are man-made created guesses that are usually largely influenced by private industry trying to make profit, largely textbook publishers, et cetera. So when you start to deconstruct the whole system, then I th- the, the reason like, it should like make us a little skeptical, but with that skepticism should come power. Like if we know that like, hey, we really believe we should be focusing on integrating more African-American and Latino authors into our curriculum, but we're really afraid about removing short story X or Y. Like once we realize it doesn't like we matter, but it, the curriculum doesn't matter as much as we think. Um, and as much as we've been trained to think. So like, I think we have to deconstruct the entire process. And then I think teachers will feel empowered because if you ask your wife, or you ask random third grade teacher in Iowa or sixth grade teacher in California, they will tell you that they feel compelled to do things that they don't feel are important for kids. So if we can just erase that and empower people to do what they know is best for kids, I think what would happen is that we'd have a lot more people focusing on the social emotional health of their kids, and a lot more people pushing their kids further and faster in terms of their academics, as opposed to trying to stay in the same pace um, in a pacing guide. So like the whole system from start, like, again, and this has been said a million times, so this isn't so like, we're based on an industrial model, a one size fits all model that we know is backwards and know is good for a couple things. It's really good for cost effectiveness. It's good for logistics. It's good for adults. It's not necessarily good for creating the end outcome, which we want, which for me, like I want really deep critical thinkers that can read and do math to a level that's going to give them some level of competency in, in 
typical life skills. And if I can create people that can read and can think really deeply and are okay at math, then I think we're doing a heck of a job as a school system. We just really have overcomplicated it. Um, and so, like, and I think if we have any doubt that we need kids that can read and think critically and have some sense of math and data literacy, like all I have to do is go on your social media feed and be like, oh yeah, that's what we need. Oh, we need that. Yeah, like it's very clear that that's not what we're good at societally. Like we could have a huge impact if that's just what we focused on. But instead we're distracted by the things that non-educators and people that I truly believe haven't really deeply thought through the process have told us are important instead. So when you look at you, you took on just some really incredible things in there. And I know the social emotional healths and uh, social determinants and the, the ACEs framework that's out there. There's some big focuses happening in our community in these areas right now, because those are the things we can look at and really begin to predict future behavior, at least um, substantial increase for future behavior, like dropping out of school, teenage pregnancy, suicide, uh, substance use disorder, mental health issues, things like that. Um, And so if the benchmark right now is standardized testing, is there a different benchmark for comparison? Like how do you, how do you, evaluate and have some kind of, do you have a system in mind that shows, Hey, we're doing well? So, um, a couple things to piece apart. A, I don't have, a, I don't have a great recommendation on that. So I'll just be transparent. Like I think that, I think there's some stuff out there. I just don't think anything is flush and clear. Well, Cause we'll all agree that standardized tests, they're ridiculous and they bring a negative light on our school districts in a very unfair way. And they're skewed in a lot of ways, right? Like every educator I've talked to, every superintendent I've talked to. So, sorry. Yeah, no, 100%. Like there are people, so like I will use like myself for an example. Um, I score really well on standardized tests. I would have scored really well on standardized tests in spite of any education I got or, and I wouldn't have been influenced much, my scores wouldn't have been much different if I had the best possible education. Like, and I think that's where we typically are. Like we can, does that mean that we can't improve people's performance? No, absolutely not. But when we're doing it for the wrong reasons, we get distracted. Um, so like, like if, if a kid can't, so this is typically what happens in American school. I'm going to go on a rant here that doesn't answer your question. So if we can come back to your question in a second, RTI and MTSS is a really popular initiative throughout the country. And in many States, it's law that you have to have an RTI or MTSS plan. RTI is response to intervention. MTSS is multi-tiered system of support. So what that essentially means is schools are supposed to give a universal standardized test as a screener, identify where kids are not meeting standard, and then work really hard to do something productive and proactive to help those kids get up to standard. So first of all, most schools are doing it just absolutely backwards, and we're wasting literally hundreds of millions of dollars a year in our country doing it. There's lots of Again, educational peer-reviewed studies that indicate this. So what typically happens is if I'm Johnny and I'm a second grade teacher and I have five kids that don't meet standard, those five kids then leave my room to go get intervention help. Now, the intervention help is typically provided by an aide because schools can't afford a certified teacher. So now I'm taking my most needy kids from the teacher who's an expert and moving them to somebody who's not an expert to give a canned curriculum. It's just a backwards process in of itself. But what typically happens is we focus time, effort, energy, resources on what have commonly become known in the educational world as our bubble kids. So our kids that are close enough to standard that if we pour resources in, maybe they'll get over that bar and our school will look better on the school report card, as opposed to saying, 
oh my goodness, we actually have kids that can't read in fifth grade. Let's dump our, our resources into there so that we make sure that our kids can read. Instead, we're like, oh, those kids are probably too low. So we're just going to we'll figure something out to do with those kids. We're going to take these kids that are on the bubble and pour our resources into them so that we look better on a standardized test. So like we have created like the worst business books you read about, hey, they're cutting, they're doing everything they can for bottom line only, even though it's not indicative of what their mission and purpose is. Like it's like every Lencioni book that's out there, right? Like, and this is what schools are doing. And it's being like, promoted, like, hey, we have this great MTSS system. Well, that's great. But like, what are we doing? Like, what are we actually doing? Like, are we just trying to get kids over a hump to score better on a standardized test? Are we actually doing what we believe in? And it can be same, right? Like that Venn diagram can overlap. It just isn't in far too many places. Yeah. Well, and you don't have to be an expert in education to, to listen to what you're talking about. It's similar things that that I've heard from my wife, uh, from other educators to know that doesn't work, to understand that if this were a private sector business and, and it had continued to do things that didn't work, we'd have been bankrupt a long time ago. We'd be blockbuster. That, that'd be it, right? That'd yeah. be it. So why don't you take me through the three keys and the three areas of the education evolution and let's break those down a little bit as we, as we begin to vision solutions for these problems. Uh, so the first thing is interdependence. Uh, and this is one that I would not have necessarily thought of before I became a rural educator. So my entirety of my teaching experience is inner city as assistant principal in Rockford, which is large urban. And then now uh, my, my principal post, my superintendent post has been small town rural. Uh, and so what is abundantly clear um, in small town rural, but it also transfers to the other two settings, um, I just wouldn't have thought of it there, is that we know that there's a lack of totality of resources. And so instead of, like, we, we don't have a gifted program, right? So for our kids that are clearly demonstrating that our curriculum doesn't meet their needs because they're too advanced, like, we have very limited options outside of teacher excellence and brilliance to extend them, but there's no systematic protocol to do so. Um, we also, in our district, don't have an autos program. We don't have um, any foreign language except for Spanish. Like, there's a million things we don't have. So the question becomes, how do we start to do those things? And so in our county, so in my county, we have seven districts. If we would work together and pool our resources, we could have just about everything that any really large affluent suburban district has to provide their kids. We would just have to work together and be, um, have some humility about ourselves in order to do that. And what I mean by humility is this, is if my neighboring district um, has autos and I have welding. It sure doesn't make sense for us to share those kids. If my kids want autos, they go there. Absolutely, but it never works, right? Like there's a million logistical concerns. The way that it works is to say, if you if you want autos that badly, then we can't make the schedule work because you missed two classes on either side of autos to get there. But you can just take English there then, or you can take math. But we have too much pride in what we're providing to allow our students the autonomy and flexibility to work that way. The second thing is that a lot of superintendents, and I'll like kind of throw some of my peers under the bus on this, and I'll say I'm very proud in my, my county this is not the way it works, um, but I know in many that it does, is that great, our, our tuition rate is $10,000 a kid. If you want your kid to take autos, that's one-seventh of the schedule, so your kid can take autos, but it's $1,800. Well, that's great for your district, right? Like, but like, what, what does that say about like our kids? So are you just saying your kids are your kids and my kid are my kids? Are we worried about like, our regional success? Are we worried about our statewide, our national success? Um, and I think that, again, if the, the pandemic has taught us stuff, is that we can do remote learning. And 
I, I would say like wholeheartedly remote learning is not the same as face-to-face, particularly for our younger kids. I think the younger we are, the more important face-to-face is. But we know it's possible now. So if I don't have a Calc B, a second level Calc in my school, but I know that Nutrier does, there's no reason that we can't figure out some way to stream that class for my kid to get access to it now if we're creative and thoughtful. The issue is that nobody is thinking outside of their own district. Um, and so this is to me, again, is a leadership problem and a board level problem, maybe a principal level. This isn't a teacher level issue. Like this isn't their purview. Like we should be thinking about this on their behalf and approaching them. It becomes a teacher level issue when we say, hey, we got five kids um, from Rock Falls that want to pipe into our AP microbio class. And then it becomes a union issue. Then we have to work through some teacher stuff, right? Um, but in, until we get there, this is just a leadership and imagination problem. So until we can become interdependent, what we choose to do is basically limit a kid's educational experience simply based on zip code and geography. And that's sad and avoidable. Um, when So I grew up in the Burbs and I entertained some job offers to go to the Burbs at times and I've chosen to stay. But one of the biggest things that makes me entertain those job offers is knowing as an educator that my own kids would have dramatically different and better experiences and opportunities if we went to one of these massive, well-funded schools. And that's just simply not what the majority of our country can provide our kids. And so when we talk about like, that's the majority of our country, uh, and we have these pockets of suburban excellence who also happen to be your award-winning schools, shocking, um, then why can't we do something to, to bridge that gap creatively and thoughtfully uh, without relying on the fact that, well, it's local taxpayer money, so we don't want to give that away to other kids and, and all these other like valid arguments, but that these arguments that go against everything that we espouse as educational leaders about philosophy and trying to really support the, the next generation of, of Americans as opposed to support the next generation of District 223 um, graduates. And so at some point, if we don't break out of that mindset, then again, we're just condemning our kids to suffer or enjoy the privileges or the spoils of their zip code as opposed to what we know is best for kids and what is possible if we'd be creative and thoughtful. Love that. Yeah, interdependence is such a huge thing. You know, Dixon is a town of 16,000 people. County is about 35,000, but our regional area is quite a bit bigger. A bunch of towns about our size. And interdependence is such an important thing, um, not just for schools, but for city government, for police departments, for fire departments. It's important for hospitals, right? It's important across the board in so many different areas. Why don't you talk about partnerships? What kind of strategic partnerships are necessary to bring to life some of the things that, that, that we need to see to take our education system to the next level? So I think we need to be real about the data that we see, right? Like, so we, we know that the majority of our kids that graduate do not graduate college nationally. This isn't a, a Meridian thing. This isn't a regional thing. So we know a lot of kids go to college. We know a lot of kids don't complete college. We also know that the job market is what the job market is. And there's a lot of historical data that says the job market really hasn't changed that much. There's, there's not that many white collar jobs to get. There's never really been that many white collar jobs to pursue. But when we as a school try to push everyone toward that college bound, like when we're trying to create, you know, 90% white collar jobs, when maybe 10% white collar jobs exist, we create a fundamental and imbalance in the equilibrium. But if we look at the data, it's pretty clear. Like we need to do a better job of getting our kids ready to go into skilled labor jobs that are needed and well-paying and pay a livable wage 
in, within our communities. And there are plenty of them. Now the, the challenge becomes figuring out how to partner with private entities to help put us in a position to succeed in getting the kids ready for those. Um, the example I use in the, in the TED talk is about welding. So we're very fortunate that we are in a geographic area of the state where welders are needed and welders earn a livable wage. And we also are very fortunate that many of our organizations that need welders are thoughtful and proactive in this approach. So we get training, we get materials, um, and we get the state-of-the-art equipment necessary to train up our welders so they can leave and become productive as soon as they get into the workforce. Without that outside support, there's no way as a small district I could afford to provide that. And so what I've learned in the process is that when we are training our kids on tools that are no longer like valid, like they're they're outdated and antiquated, essentially that training becomes useless because when they get into the workforce, they just have to be retrained. And so the more that we do this, the, the more that our employers continue to get frustrated with the level of, of graduates we're producing. So until we start to work really thoughtfully with our partners and Part of this is sales, right? Like it's super time. Like I have to convince them like, look, this is a good investment for you. Like if your turnover is X, Y, Z, if your outreach is, you know, ABC, we're right here. All we need is this or that. And really what we like, we get hand me down, you know, machinery from them that is still state of the art and wonderful for us that then our kids can get trained on and then be, you know, potential hires for them. And then you become, you know, really, really stable partners for people. And what we end up with is a bunch of, you know, 19 year old kids that come back and talk to us and are making, you know, two and three times more than our entry-level teachers are making. And like, we have direct avenues to do this for kids. And when we, you know, create a 19-year-old that's making 65 and $70,000 that lives in our community, pays taxes in our community, is going to raise a family in our community, that's how small towns continue to live. Um, but when we don't do that, what's going to happen is we create all these kids that are college-bound. Some of them will be successful, some of them won't. The kids that aren't come back having wasted tons of money and lots of debt. The ones that are typically get their college degree and then go to an urban center and leave our community anyway. So I am pro-college for the kids that want those jobs, are capable, um, and are going to be successful and have the, the money to do that. But the, the notion of that everybody should be college-bound, I think is foolhardy and it's costing uh, you know, our individuals tons and tons of money. Uh, that could be reinvested in our in our own local economy if we would point them in the right direction. So I think like college and career readiness planning is massively important, and I think really, um, it like I think we're at a, like a divergent path right now in our in in schools. Like I think we'll see this change in a decade because what we're seeing is the social emotional needs are growing and the college and career planning is growing. So we can't have two growing aspects with the same level of funding for school counseling. And so that's what we've done. We've broken it into two different departments. Um, in our district, and I think a lot of suburban districts are doing similar things. Um, but if we continue to tell our counselors to do both roles, it's going to become fundamentally impossible. So I know I, I ranted there for a bit. I don't know if there's anything you want to dissect from that. No, I think that, that that's great. Again, we're talking to Dr. PJ Capozzi, um, and we're talking about education and education evolution, education innovation, the, the future of education. And and he shared two of the three things that he sees as game changers and the components to get there. The first was interdependence, the ability for districts to work together, to provide different opportunities, to, to be able to stay on top of what is cutting edge. Um, the, the second is partnerships. And really, as you look at private partnerships and, and the opportunities to, to get there. And you, know, you talked about the, the idea with college. And I think it's okay to say, you know, 
college isn't for everyone. It's not right for everyone. Gary Vee talks about this all the time. I don't know if you listen to Gary yep. Vee at all. Huge fan of Gary Vee. Um, we, we cannot saddle people with hundred dollars to $150,000 in debt and coming out. And if it's right for people, that's awesome. You know, but if, but if it's not, we've got to give them other opportunities and these partnerships are giving people other opportunities. And what we're seeing now, especially in our area, is we don't have enough skilled workers. We don't have enough plumbers, welders, right? We, we don't have enough mechanics. We don't have enough general construction people. All these things are important and they pay good jobs. And you pointed out, most of these people come into their field making more than a teacher who's got a bachelor's or, or a master's degree. And then the final one that we'll use to kind of wrap up our, our show today is increasing the rate of change. We can go all day on this one. I mean, I don't know of an industry that could possibly change slower than education has. I mean, so walk into a school, does it look like it did when you went there? Probably. Does it look like it did when your parents went there? Probably. Um, and so why? I mean, the question just guess, fundamentally becomes why. And I, I know all the reasons why change is hard in schools because I live it every single day. Um, so I can go on and on about why. And there's some really valid reasons to that. And one of them has to do with school boards. Um, and again, I have a, an amazing school board, but when we think about school boards, we have seven people that either had a wonderful experience in school and want to serve their school board or a horrible experience in school and want to change their school. Um, and so we all have this modeling, right? Like we all have, there's no other profession or industry that people enter into with 17 years of modeling, right? Like your, your minimum of 17, and it's usually a bad technique modeling. So we have to unwrite all that mental code in, in, in order to think about what it could be and what it could look like. And the, the thing that baffles me is like, we literally don't listen to our own research. So I can't imagine another entity that is as over-researched as education. So there's like, there are a lot of, you know, me's, there's a lot of doctors of education and to do that, you have to do research. And then there's a lot of meta-analysis of the research we do. Like we kind of have a really good idea as to what probably works in schools. Um, and like, I, I, we just choose to not change much. Like, I, I, like I don't really get why um, that is. And like, it, there's a systemic problem literally from the ground to the ceiling. So um, like, I think it's very easy to blame other people in this. And like you talked about like a victimhood mindset, but like the way we train teachers is ridiculous. I have no idea why we certify the way we do. Um, we focus on many of the things that aren't necessarily necessary. Um, there's a handful of things that I think are like patently necessary for every educator to have. And we don't um, do a very good job of doing that. Just to give a handful of that. Like every educator needs to teach kids how to read every educator. So whether you're going to be high school, social studies or kindergarten, you need to be able to understand the conceptualization of how the brain functions in reading. Second thing is like neuroscience is an exploding field. If we don't understand how the young brain works in comparison to the mature brain, then we're missing out on massive things. If we don't understand how social justice and racism impacts learning, we're missing out. Like, but these are things that aren't part of teacher certification. Instead, they get their 18th class on sociology. Well, great, but what? And so until we fundamentally shift how we think about like what an educator is, um, then I think it becomes hard to change collectively. Like, so in my dream world where someone says, hey, PJ, come start a charter school, like, there is no, English, like we're all teachers of, of learning. And then we have some, you know, either like expertise in a given subject, but that doesn't necessarily need to be certified to me. Like there's, we, we, we focus on the wrong things and we protect the wrong things. And we have 
um, agency in the, the, the wrong things. And so it, it, it goes back to like, I think social media can be a pit right now. Like, but like the memes that go viral, go viral for a reason. So like every tax season, the, the meme that says, well, I'm really glad that I learned, you know, trigonometry because that was really useful. While I tried to do my taxes today because we don't teach kids how to do like simple <laughs> functional things. Like those go viral for a reason. And so like when people think about their schooling, think like we know some things, like we know that people don't remember like 98% of what we teach in school. So why don't we teach kids how to think and quit worrying about stuff? Like, so there's a, the, the biggest thing for me with when we talk about the speed of change is leaders at some point have to lead. And that, that means going at a speed that sometimes your community is, you can only pull as fast as your community is willing to go. Um, which part of the part that I struggled with my Ted talk was, and um, when I was talking to the advisors was like, look, I know where I want us to go. And my district's not quite there yet. Cause I, I'm pulling as fast as I can pull. And I feel like we've made up 20 years in the last five years. Like I think like I walked into the 1980s and I think we're current now. Um, but like, we're not advanced. We're not where I, I want us to be or need to be. And like, because leading change is hard, right? Like it's Cotter's change circle. Like there is no sense of urgency. Like we're an award-winning nationally recognized district that the majority of, we have all time high culture and climate scores. So why are we pushing so hard? Like why, why do we care? Because it's not good enough. Like it, like it, but when we're looking at our fundamental measures, unless we can create a different sense of urgency, leading change becomes really, really hard. Um, and especially leading as fast as I think like I want to lead. It just becomes a, it's an interesting challenge, but like, again, that's why it's a fascinating, brilliant line of work. And that's why I love um, most every day that I get to go into the office. Well, one thing I think is, is really amazing, amazing PJ is it's, it's one thing to do the incredible things you've done, the national recognitions, the culture, the climate within your district, the way you're impacting the lives of school, you're changing the lives of children in your district district. And you could stop there. Right. But you're driven to make a bigger difference in this world. You just don't believe in the kids in your district. You believe in all the kids that are the future of our country. And so it, it's really inspiring to me to see the leadership you're demonstrating uh, in the way you're getting out there and you're working with other districts and you're doing the TED Talks and you're writing books and you're sharing because you know, you, you've got a gift. And the fact that you're willing to share this gift uh, with, with, with our society and with, this, with the education institution is phenomenal. When we talk about the increased rate of change, I think when, when we look at cultures, and, and, and most school cultures aren't like this, they're just not, but we've got to create cultures of change. We, we've got to, we have to empower teachers to, and, and, and take the steps necessary to create real ownership and, and to, to make a real shift because, you know, Simon Sinek talks about some people see the obstacle and some people see the prize. Those who see the obstacle get the obstacle. Those who see the prize get the prize. And, and really, because you're right, communities at times can change slowly. But I think with the right leadership and with the right messaging and with, with the, the administration and with the teachers, you know, saddling up with these innovative strategies, they will pull their communities forward. And there isn't, and I'll say it again, there isn't more important than the youth. They are the, the future. And, and I tell you what, even when there are things that we don't have, even when there are things we can't control, when we make that mindset shift, it's just dial directly into mission and purpose and, and why these amazing people became educators, right? And focus on the prize. 
and, and begin to move forward, the, the change that will happen within them, let alone the change that will happen within our children and our communities, will be absolutely phenomenal. And it really will be a shift from, from a lot of times what is a, a victim mentality to, to the mentality and the mindset of a champion. And once we get that and then, and then ignite this incredible synergy, anything, anything, anything is possible. I, I could not agree more. And I love the last part that you said about synergy is because I think um, the, the change in a singular community will have a ripple effect across the board, right? Like, so if, um, if we do something really amazing and innovative in Meridian, it's not going to be long before the rest of our county follows, right? And if, and, and vice versa. And I think we've seen like, it, it's contagious, right? Like leadership is contagious and ambition oh, is gosh. contagious. Um, and it's, and energy. Like it's energy. a really interesting process to watch. Yeah. No, I, I love it. I love it. So I, I do want to ask you, because we talked about the fact that you're a four-time cancer survivor, right? How, how are you doing? So it's three-time. There's a typo in the TED thing. And once it gets to TED Global, it's like impossible to erase. So I've sent like 40 emails, but it's three. Um, and hopefully never four. Like it's, I wouldn't be trying to change it so much if I didn't think it was bad karma. Um, so, so, um, so I am good. Um, I am, it's interesting cause I am uh, scared to death of the virus. And so I am a 39 year old in good health, physically, um, fit, um, and you know, work out of like all the things like I should be fine, right? Like I have no underlying conditions, um, per uh, other than I'm heavy, but I'm, I'm, I like to keep my strong heavy, so it's okay. Um, <laughs> but the, it's terrifying to me because I've had weird health experiences before. And even though the science at this point says being a cancer survivor has no impact on, on survivability of the virus, it's still really interesting. So I would say from, from a health standpoint, I think I'm doing really good. Um, and I get checked up like more than anyone. I get poked and prodded quite a bit. So um, I think I'm doing good there just to be truly transparent. And maybe this is a conversation for a different topic. Like I suffer from at times debilitating health anxiety. Um, so the way that, um, I think this is the easiest way I can explain it. The way that people are tired of waking up and thinking about COVID every day, um, that the other, you know, 50 years of their life haven't really thought about their health unless like their ankle hurts or they have a stomach ache. I wake up and think about mortality and illness every day, every car ride, every, like every shower, every run, um, and so that, that feeling of like that general fatigue of like, I'm so tired of thinking about my health and protecting my family and protecting myself, like as a cancer survivor, and everyone knows a cancer survivor, that's why I share this, being a survivor is harder than being in the fight, it, like dramatically. Because when you're in the fight, you're in the fight. Like you just, let's go, right? Like let's, let's do what you can. Once you're out of it, then you have to start thinking about what happened before and not wanting to go back there. Um, and then you add in like having a family and responsibilities and, um, that can be really debilitating mentally. So like that would be like, so for me, whenever I'm asked, like I think it's appropriate to share because I think everyone struggles with their own mental uh, anxieties and things that go through. And so for me, it's uh, like, as debilitating is probably the wrong word. It's just consistent and constant in every day. Um, and so it, like, it, if you know somebody that's gone through some stuff before, I know that it's plaguing them in the back of their mind and they probably don't feel comfortable sharing it because you get this outpouring of support when you're in the fight. It's just like anything else, right? Like, and then once that is over, then it goes. And that's when really the, the mind starts playing tricks on itself. Wow. So much strength, so much courage, so much humility, so much vulnerability, all incredible, incredible qualities of 
great leaders. And the, the struggles we face are what, what and the resistance we face and the challenges and the overwhelming challenges that, that we are able to overcome make us who we are today. They made you the champion that you are today, the incredible leader that you are today. It is such an honor to have you on the podcast. Um, as you know, before I ask that question, you know, just looking at PJ, you'd have no idea that he's a three-time cancer survivor, you know, very healthy, very fit, well put together, um, as you'll see from the podcast image. But um, I'm, I'm really glad, and on behalf of, of our team and our listeners, that, that not only are you doing incredibly well, right, but that you are leading such innovation and change in such an important, important area. Do you have any final call to action uh, before we move to close? Uh, so the thing that I, it all starts internally. So it's the same thing that you've, you've kind of been saying. So the call to action for me isn't anything about education, isn't anything about business. It's just about figuring out um, the, the very best people to me are the people that are the most aware of who they are. And so the question that I like to ask the people that I coach all the time is like, how, how do you get to know you? Like, what are, what are you doing to get to a different level of understanding of yourself? Because once you understand yourself, like it's like any other craft, right? Like once you understand carpentry, you can get better at it. Once I understand how I'm wired, why I'm wired, then I can start to use that to my advantage as opposed to letting it hold me back. Um, so the call to action for anyone is just take some time to get to know yourself. Do you like your own company? Um, if you don't like your own company, what can you work through to like your company better? Because once, once you start working through those processes internally, internal victory before external victory always. Wow. It all starts from within, you know, mindset's the foundation of our success. PJ, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today, to share these incredible thoughts, perspectives, to share your story, to, to be humble, to be vulnerable, to be strong and courageous. You know, teachers, educators, you really are life changers. You really are life changing. As we talk about this education evolution, and, and really begin to move at the speed of light forward and innovation in such an important area. Three big keys that PJ's highlighted today are interdependence, the ability to work together, strategic partnerships, those private public partnerships, and increasing the rate of change, really creating cultures of, of change, seeing challenge as incredible opportunity. One of the things we like to talk about is the best way to predict the future is to create it. Leaders are predicting the future across our country every day. PJ is, is predicting and creating the future across our country every day. If you're interested in connecting with or learning more about Dr. PJ Capozzi, his information is going to be linked in the podcast description. To our listeners, thank you for sharing this time with us. If you found the episode helpful, please consider subscribing, give us a rating, leave a review, share with your network. This truly helps us help more people by growing organically. If you want to receive more information on leadership motivation, leadership strategies, please go to our website. It's in the link below. Uh, subscribe, subscribe to our email list. I promise not to overwhelm your inbox. It's very, very busy. It'll only be important and good stuff. Thank you. Thank you again, PJ. Thank you to our listeners for joining us today. And remember, always be committed to excellence.